Hey, everybody. It is Tuesday, November 14th. You're listening to the Mo News Podcast. I'm Mo Shwanunu. And I'm Jill Wagner. This is the place where we bring you just the facts. And we read all the news and read between the lines so you don't have to. Jill, big news today. Today is National Pickle Day. Do you have a favorite pickle? It is not a topic that I feel extremely strongly about. Um, Some people are pickle people. (laughs) I do (laughs) like a good sour pickle. I prefer mm. like kind. Of, I, I think that's like a dill pickle. Yeah. The problem in my house is that many years ago, when my husband was a pledge in a fraternity, they must have done some activity that involved pickles, and mm. he can no longer go near a pickle. So we are basically not allowed. I don't know what went on. I think it involved eating copious amounts of pickles, but we are not allowed to really have pickles in our house. Okay, pickle-free household. Sorry, Michael, for whatever happened. You know, I have to say, I just, I'm not into the sweet pickles. There's always some sweet ones, especially if you go to like a deli in New York City, you'll get a variety sometimes of pickles. The sweet ones don't cut it for me. I'm, you know, variations on sour, I feel like, uh, are the way to go. Jill, I should mention, uh, before we get started here, premium members, you guys have a new podcast over on the Mo News Premium pod, have an interview out with Garrett Graff. He is a, a longtime national security reporter, has a new book out on UFOs, Basically, a comprehensive history of the American government, what they've covered up, and why they covered it up. I think you'll find it fascinating, Jill. We go into the true story of Roswell. We also go into presidents and who's been most fascinated by UFOs. We've mentioned on this pod, Jimmy Carter, but Ronald Reagan, Bill Clinton, huge UFO people. They both came in office saying, tell me everything we know about the UFOs. So we dive into that. I think you'll find it fascinating. And like many things government, the cover-up exists. But it's not to hide things they do know, but more things they don't know. Incompetence, if you will. <laughs> I can't wait. This is so up my alley. I cannot wait to listen. So, yes, we have that over on the premium pod. Uh, for those of you who aren't members, you can join over at mo.news slash premium. Lets you support this account. Also lets you uh, get access to the premium pod and our premium Instagram account, Jill, where we uh, do a whole variety of things. Answer your questions, give you some behind the scenes content. We keep it interesting. So I think that this afternoon or one day this week, I'm going to do a behind the scenes as I put together the podcast. And I'm going to ask people on the premium account what kind of stories they want us to focus on. So what happens in the process is that we go back and forth on story ideas and we either say yay or nay or try it or whatever. So I will be kind of throwing it out to the to the crowd and I'll see what everyone thinks. We're going to make the Monu's podcast a democracy for one day and one day only. We'll <laughs> yeah. see how it works out. As opposed to the authoritarian (laughs) regime of me and Jill. (laughs) Exactly, Mosh, because you run a tight ship over here. Um, All right, let's get to some headlines. This is a story ripped from the news hmm, 45 days ago. Uh, We are just days away from another potential government shutdown. What's the new House Speaker's plan and how it might impact your Thanksgiving travel? The latest from the Middle East, where the humanitarian crisis is growing more dire in Gaza... And Israel says that it has uncovered a Hamas command center under a children's hospital. And they think that at some point, some of the hostages were actually held there. Back here in the U.S., the Supreme Court adopts a code of ethics. But there is a catch. There's no enforcement mechanism. They're going to be policing themselves, Jill. What could possibly go wrong? The Secret (laughs) Service has a shootout as they're protecting one of the Biden's granddaughters in D.C., Iceland bracing for an unprecedented volcanic eruption. In tech news, chat GPT is being used for eulogies at wedding speeches. 
what some of you are telling us about that. And just days after announcing a reporter devoted to Taylor Swift, USA Today announced their devoted fiance reporter. Chosen straight from the Bayhive. Beehive. Bayhive? Don't know. <laughs> Plus, Moshe's on this day in history. We wish one famous royal a happy birthday, Joe, but it's a Carter-themed episode. Some Jay-Z news we can tell you about today, too. All right, Mosh, we have actually been avoiding this story, or you have really been avoiding this story as we were talking about the behind the scenes of the podcast. I have been pitching every day for two weeks, like, shutdown update, and you're just like, nope. Well, it's just like, Congress does this to us over and over again. You know, if you know the Charlie Brown comic, like, I feel like, you know, Congress is like Lucy with the football and like, they're like, we're going to have a shutdown. We're trying to avoid a shutdown. I'm like, oh, I can't cover this again. So anyway, we are now within a week of a potential shutdown. So I felt obligated. Like, let's let the people know they're going to be hearing about this. What do they need to know? (laughs) And so Jill, here we are. Yes. So here we are just a few days away from another potential government shutdown. The current spending plan expires at midnight on Friday, Certain government operations will halt if House Republicans cannot agree on a plan that also gets approval from President Biden and the Democratic Senate. And so it means Washington again faces this wild ride of shutdown brinkmanship. The brand new House Speaker Mike Johnson may already be losing his first big clash with a few hard right lawmakers in the Republican caucus who are already creating headaches for him. And he may soon find himself in the position that doomed his predecessor, Congressman Kevin McCarthy, needing Democratic votes to keep the government open. Johnson on Saturday unveiling a complex two-tiered plan to temporarily fund the government with a pair of deadlines in January and February for the passage of permanent department budgets. The move could head off the Washington holiday season tradition of shutdown dramas and mammoth all-encompassing spending bills. Johnson is facing a handful of GOP defections on his two-step strategy to fund the government, meaning that he will need Democratic support to avert this painful shutdown at the end of the week. Already, at least seven conservatives have said that they will vote no on Johnson's plan, and many more could join that group. Johnson can only afford to lose three Republicans on this funding bill. So the political and geopolitical costs of this mess only growing. They've already spent two months on this, and then there were those two weeks without a speaker. And Moshe, I think it's safe to say Mike Johnson reconsidering why he wanted this job. Why am I speaker again? Besides (laughs) the really nice office. Actually, the speaker of the house has this really amazing office, Jill. If you know somebody, go get a tour. They have a balcony that overlooks the National Mall. It's probably one of the best views in Washington. Well, besides that view, you have to deal with the caucus and have to try to avert a shutdown. And as you mentioned, they've been dealing with this for basically since they came back from vacation in August, off and on, because of course there were the few weeks there without the speaker. They don't have that aid package uh, for Israel yet. They don't have a solution on Ukraine aid. uh, And they haven't done anything else this fall, frankly. Next year is an election year, so even less is set to be done. This was the time to get something done. And yet here we are. So as far as his complex plan that already has some opposition amongst Republicans, it's what's called a laddered CR. It's a continuing resolution AKA, it basically takes what we're currently doing and extends it longer. It's kicking the can down the road. But this is a laddered approach because basically it would extend the operation in some agencies till January 19th, in other agencies till February 2nd, the way the government funds 
itself is all the various departments, right? The agriculture department, the energy department, the state department, the Pentagon, etc. So he was going to prioritize some, then make others less of a priority, keep money going to them until they can come up with a new deal. So effectively, again, just kicking the can down the road, trying to work on the departments they can agree on, the more controversial ones, you know, push that deadline further. Johnson says that this puts Republicans in the best position to fight for fiscal responsibility, to get the Biden administration to uh, cut some things, to create oversight on Ukraine aid changes on how we're handling ourselves on the U.S. border. But in essence, given the House's record here, he may simply be setting up the country for two more shutdowns, Jill, given this plan in January and February. A reminder here, Johnson is brand new to this. He's never served in a highly placed leadership role. He doesn't know a number of members of the conference. That was something that McCarthy had to his advantage. He knew all those players. He'd been in leadership for a while, so he knew what was important to most of his caucus. Johnson, he's still meeting other Republicans. You know, there's 200 plus of them, right? Hello, I'm the new speaker. Nice to meet you. (laughs) (laughs) What's important to you? Can you help me keep this job for more than a few days? On top of that, it's who's not there that also has huge influence. It's Donald Trump. He has huge influence on a number of far-right Republicans. And with a tweet or an X or Truth Social or whatever he's doing these days, he can basically dictate the fate of this. To give you a sense of what he's facing, somebody who's very loyal to Trump, Marjorie Taylor Greene. We've mentioned her on the pod before. She took to Twitter. I'm going to still call it Twitter, by the way. I know it's called X, but let's just call it Twitter. Um, And she listed objectionable items in the Johnson plan. In all caps, she writes, no money to Ukraine, exclamation point. Close the border, exclamation point. Stop the weaponized government, exclamation point. Impeach Biden, Mayorkas, Chris Ray, Merrick Garland, and Graves. Those are her demands. And that gives you a sense of a handful of people he's dealing with in his caucus. So you have this debate amongst Republicans. We've seen a number of times now. The Republicans who are practical and pragmatic saying, listen, Democrats control the Senate. Biden controls the White House. We all need to come to a deal here. We have to make a compromise. Biden says, guys, we made a deal back in the summer. We made a compromise. I cut a bunch of budget items because, you know, at that time we were trying to avoid a debt ceiling uh, crisis, a debt default. And so I've made concessions to you guys. We're done. That was the deal. Well, Republicans are coming back for more here. And so you're seeing, you know, an issue here. The White House, by the way, is also dumping on Johnson's proposal, saying it's a proposal for Republican chaos, more shutdowns, full stop. They're wasting precious time with an unserious proposal that effectively cannot get through the Senate and the White House. Now, in terms of some practical implications, a.k.a. how does this affect us? The shutdown could force TSA employees and federal air traffic controllers to work without pay. Just as the busy Thanksgiving travel season begins, about 4.7 million people are expected to fly over that five-day period surrounding Thanksgiving, the highest projection in nearly two decades, according to a forecast that was released Monday by AAA. Yeah, keep in mind that a government shutdown doesn't affect mandatory programs like Medicare, Social Security, et cetera, but it's all the non-essential parts or what's deemed non-essential parts of the government that's impacted. So that could be food inspection. That could be national institutes of health funding. Like you mentioned, Jill, you know, TSA air traffic controllers would not get paid. By the way, that's what led to the end of the last shutdown during the Trump administration when people started walking off the job and it was impacting um, how we were traveling. That was back in 2018, 2019. So national parks will be closed, a whole variety of things that we'll get into later this week. But we would just want all of you to have a heads up that this is what Congress is up to this week, and we'll track it for you. 
All right, now to the Middle East. Fighting continues around Al-Shifa Hospital, which is the largest in Gaza. The facility's director telling CNN the conditions are catastrophic as essential units have collapsed. A story that we mentioned yesterday, doctors had to remove some premature babies from incubators when oxygen ran out. So they're basically wrapped in foil as a way to keep them warm and alive. Operating rooms at the hospital out of service. For its part, Israel says Hamas has its headquarters below the hospital. It's something that American officials are also confirming to CNN, citing their own intelligence. They say Hamas has a command node under the hospital and that it's using the fuel that is intended to run the hospital for their own purposes. Hospital doctors and Hamas deny that claim. Regardless of who is to blame, the situation for the patients there is quite dire. Jill, right now, the Israelis have been trying to work with the hospital to evacuate the facility. They're also asking the Europeans and others uh, to help here. There have been uh, potential plans to create some offshore hospitals to evacuate uh, the patients out of there. The Israelis say they're creating a corridor to evacuate them, but they haven't been able to coordinate this. And keep in mind that the administrators who run the hospital report into the Hamas-run health ministry, which doesn't want to cooperate with the Israelis, again, making this even messier. On to another hospital. Medical officials say Al-Quds Hospital, the second largest in Gaza, also out of service. The Israeli military said Monday that it killed a group of Hamas fighters that were, quote, embedded among civilians there. And also on Monday, the IDF brought press into the Rantisi Children's Hospital in Gaza. So this is another one of the Gaza hospitals in northern Gaza. Jill, we should note there's about three dozen hospitals in the Gaza Strip. And an IDF spokesperson saying that Hamas operatives were holed up there and that the IDF has evidence indicating that hostages were likely held there as well, including an improvised toilet and other infrastructure that would have been used to hold hostages. He says, quote, underneath the hospital in the basement, we found a Hamas command and control center, suicide bomb vests, grenades, AK-47 assault rifles, explosive devices, RPGs and other weapons, computers, money, etc. And we also found signs that indicate Hamas held hostages there. He says Israel helped the hospital managers evacuate the Gaza patients to a safer hospital. And he reiterated they're at war against Hamas, not the people in Gaza, especially not the sick, the women or the children. But again, just a horrible situation on the ground there for all of the civilians who had nothing to do with any of this. Yeah, it's just such a dilemma here because, again, the Israelis have evidence here that Hamas bunker command center is under the hospital. Also evidence they're holding hostages under the hospital. At the same time, you have these innocent people being treated at the hospital, including these infants. The Israelis say it's justified in taking military action around the hospital, despite criticism they're getting from the UN, other international organizations, you know, who say this is a war crime to do things around a hospital. Israel says it also happens to be a war crime to use a hospital as a military headquarters. And so just a very messy situation. Uh, the government, again, of Israel saying it's created an evacuation corridor, has called for the removal of civilians, saying they will assist the doctors, especially in getting those babies out of the hospital. But it requires coordination. It also requires the doctors to basically defy the Hamas leadership that still runs the health ministry there. Asked by reporters about the situation, President Biden said on Monday, the hospital must be protected. It's my hope and expectation there will be less intrusive action relative to the hospital. He says he's been in contact with the Israelis. 
It comes as the State Department said on Monday, the U.S. does not want to see civilians caught in the crossfire, but would also love to see Hamas vacate the hospitals that it's using as its command post. Again, the U.S. backing up the Israeli intelligence here, saying Hamas is, in fact, utilizing fuel at the hospital and using the hospitals. It does come, as the Israeli defense minister said on Monday, that they believe Hamas has now lost control of most of the Gaza Strip as the Israeli defense forces recapture Gaza City. Uh, Photos were released late Monday of uh, Israelis taking over a number of Gaza uh, government buildings that were once run by Hamas, including the uh, parliament, what serves as a parliament in Gaza. Israel says it sees evidence that Hamas terrorists are fleeing to the south, that many of the hostages are now being held in the south as Israel tightens its grip on the north. And Jill, while we're watching all of that happen in Gaza, there is, of course, the ongoing negotiation when it comes to the hostages, the 240 hostages currently being held in the Gaza Strip. And I quickly want to mention uh, that's 240 or whatever the number is, plus one, because Israeli officials now believe that one of the women who was abducted by Hamas to Gaza on October 7th has likely given birth in captivity. So she was clearly very pregnant during that massacre and while being dragged back into Gaza. Yeah, it appears the negotiations here are uh, extremely tense and taking a long time. There's a report uh, by David Ignatius, a longtime national security reporter in The Washington Post over the weekend, that the latest deal involves the release of over 100 people, including Thai workers, tourists, Israelis with dual citizenship, meaning they have another passport of a foreign country, as well as women and children. In exchange, we've mentioned this before, for Palestinian women and minors under 18 who are currently in an Israeli prison uh, being held for a number of crimes, including attacks on Israeli troops. Now, negotiations have been lasting a while here. Uh, One of the issues is who moves first. The Israelis say that Hamas needs to release the hostages first before Israel does anything. One of the other complicated factors a number of groups hold a variety of hostages. Hamas still claims it doesn't have a full count here. In fact, Hamas has now said during negotiations they only took Israeli soldiers, that the civilians were taken by others, as in Palestinian civilians who crossed the border because the fences were open and took their own hostages. That's Hamas's claim, according to the Qataris, over the weekend. So Hamas is putting its hands up in the air, so to speak, and saying we don't control what's going on. Islamic Jihad, another terror group, has a bunch of hostages. There's also a militia called Shabiha that apparently we haven't heard of before, that also took a bunch of hostages. Uh, We've talked about how some hostages might be being held by sort of mafia families, crime families within Gaza. And so they're having difficulty locating all the hostages. One of the other issues they have is that communications are fried in Gaza with the war. So while they were able to call Hamas authorities in Gaza pretty immediately, just after October 7th, now it's taking several days for uh, Hamas leaders in Gaza to get back to them with what they think the proposal should be. A lot of these proposals are, I'll give you 20 hostages, you give us five days of ceasefire. I'll give you this many hostages, you give me three days of ceasefire. For the Israelis, they don't want to give Hamas enough time to reorganize, rearm with a ceasefire. So the five-day proposal is off the table. So this keeps going back and forth. And keep in mind, Israel and Hamas don't talk to each other right now. So you're dealing through the Americans, through the Qataris, through the Iranians, through the Egyptians. A whole bunch of people, a whole bunch of countries are involved here. I'm picturing like a very bad game of telephone. You know, people's lives are at stake and like, well, what will they do? Well, we don't control that. We know you control that. Here's evidence. We know you control that. Okay, fine. We control that. But you're going to give us this in exchange. And like, this is what you're seeing. So for those of you seeing the headlines, just like, I think, Jill, you said it yesterday on the pod, like take a pause with all these hostage headlines because it's just like, 
everyone is talking out of turn. Everyone's talking anonymously. Everyone's pushing a certain, you know, like wants certain prereqs before they do anything. Now, keep in mind, the Israelis have said, if you release all the hostages, you know, like ceasefire happens here. But Hamas has chosen not to do that. And they're trying to use what they have for the leverage they need. Um, it's one of the reasons they took the hostages um, in the beginning. And Jill, that's just the Israeli and Gaza side here. We should note in the past 24 hours, the U.S. launched a new round of strikes against Iranian forces in Syria. Uh, that comes as there's been just about 50 attacks on U.S. bases and sites across the Middle East over the last month. And and we also want to mention the U.S. Army has now identified the five Army Aviation Special Operations Forces who were killed when their helicopter crashed in the eastern Mediterranean over the weekend, calling each a, quote, national treasure whose loss cut deeply. We want to be clear that the U.S. is saying that this was just a horrible accident and it wasn't an attack. The military's European command said that the UH-60 helicopter went down during an air refueling mission as part of military training. The five service members who died were Stephen Dwyer, Shane Barnes, Tanner Grove, Andrew Southerd, and Cade Wolf. They were all part of the Army's 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment. They were based at Fort Campbell, Kentucky. And these soldiers are considered the best of the best. Uh, they were highly decorated with multiple combat deployments, in addition to responding to deployments with no notice. They are sent overseas to respond quickly to various national security needs, as you could see. So a huge loss here. Yeah, and it comes as there's an ongoing debate within the White House over how to respond to all of these Iranian-linked attacks across the region. President Biden, uh, according to the New York Times, sources tell the Times that he doesn't want to escalate things further with Iran. So they're trying to be very careful in how they respond to the various Iranian attacks. At the same time, you have folks at the Pentagon who are telling Biden that he needs to escalate things and needs to show Iran they can't get away with all these various attacks against American bases and American soldiers. Keep in mind, we've seen several dozen injuries, including some suffering from brain injuries um, due to the recent attacks. So something to continue to watch as the two sides continue to conduct strikes, but again, try to prevent all-out war. All right, plenty of news coming up. But first, a word from Athletic Greens. If you are a longtime listener to the podcast, you know that we have been drinking AG1 for months now. I could definitely feel a difference in my energy as a parent of two young kiddos. I definitely could use all the help that I can get. So AG1 is a foundational nutrition supplement. It supports your body's universal needs like gut optimization, stress management, and immune support. Since 2010, AG1 has led the future of foundational nutrition, continuously refining their formula to create a smarter, better way to elevate your baseline health. We recommend AG1 to family and friends because it's formulated based on the latest science and maintains high quality standards. I take my AG1 in the morning and I know that I am covered for the day, regardless of whatever else I manage to find time to eat. So if you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Start AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash monews. That is drinkag1.com slash monews. Check it out. Time now for the speed read from the Associated Press. The Supreme Court says that it's adopting a code of ethics. It is the first formal code of conduct governing the nine justices. But Mosh, there's a catch. The code lacks a means of enforcement. 
just the justices policing themselves. I'm sure they'll hold themselves to the highest standards, John. <laughs> yes. The 15-page code of conduct lays out five canons describing the conduct the justices should abide by, including to uphold the integrity and independence of the judiciary and avoid the appearance of impropriety of all activities. The court released its code yesterday to, quote, gather in one place the ethics, rules, and principles that guide the conduct of the members of the court. The code says justices should not allow outside relationships to influence their official conduct or judgment, placing restrictions on justices participating in fundraising and reiterating limits on how they can accept gifts. It also states that justices should not, to any substantial degree, use their judicial resources or staff to engage in non-official activities. So, of course, here, a lot of this is very subjective, right? They say the justices who are weighing a speaking engagement should, quote, consider whether doing so would create an appearance of impropriety in the minds of reasonable members of the public. Again, all very subjective. They've been nominated to interpret the law. And so here they are, you know, it's up to them to interpret their own rules to govern themselves, too, just like they interpret the Constitution and those various rules. These rules, of course, impact only nine of them, whereas the rules that they consider on an annual basis, you know, impact all 350 million of us. So unlike other members of the federal judiciary until now, the Supreme Court's nine lifetime appointed justices had long acted with no binding ethics code. By the way, Jill, among modern democracies, we're the only one with lifetime judicial appointments. We should just note that for the record. It's a special American thing. All the other countries, they have term limits on their judges. As far as this ethics code, most of the rules outlined in the code are not new themselves, but they haven't been published before. And so the belief is that for years, the fact that it wasn't published led to a misunderstanding that the judges on the court might misinterpret uh, the intention here. So they've put it to paper after a lot of criticism of late. Uh, we've told you about a number of those stories questioning the ethical practices of the justices that were published over the last year. Many of them focus on Clarence Thomas, uh, the conservative justice, and his failure to disclose a lot of expensive gifts and other hospitality, uh, financial ties, vacations from wealthy conservative donors like Harlan Crow and the Koch brothers. Justices Sam Alito and Sonia Sotomayor have also been under scrutiny. Sotomayor, you noted um, earlier, you know, not using the staff to do uh, non-official duties. She was accused of having her staff help sell her book on college campuses. Uh, but you have seen some of the newer justices, Elena Kagan, Amy Coney Barrett, publicly voice the need for a published ethics policy. And so there we have it. Of course, again, no real enforcement mechanism, but I guess a step in the right direction for our uh, nine highest justices in the land, Jill. From CBS News, officials in Iceland are preparing for a possible volcanic eruption in the wake of hundreds of earthquakes that forced a coastal town along the nation's southern peninsula to evacuate and prompted a state of emergency. There is a, quote, significant likelihood that an eruption will happen in the coming days. This is according to the meteorological office there. A spike in seismic activity led authorities to evacuate the southwestern fishing town of Grindavik, which is about an hour's drive from Reykjavik, the capital city, on Friday night. The town has a population of just over 3,600 people, but it is known internationally as a tourist hub. It is the home of the Blue Lagoon, a geothermal spa, and it's about 15 miles from Iceland's only major airport. Jill, we should note uh, Iceland about 40,000 square miles. It's about the size of Ohio and has 30 active volcanoes on it. So, you know, you often see these headlines about Icelandic volcanoes. Uh, this evacuation 
of Grindavik uh, was viewed as a precautionary measure, no immediate threats, but they have detected hundreds of earthquakes. In fact, uh, from midnight Monday to the late afternoon, just on Monday, 900 earthquakes were detected in the region, about two miles north of that town. Several shelters have been established for the residents who had to leave. Officials there saying seismic activity is a part of Icelandic life, and this is in a contained, localized area of the country. There are no disruptions to flights to and from Iceland for now. Uh, many people recall back in 2010, that huge volcanic explosion in Iceland that led to basically uh, no air traffic uh, for a couple of weeks there over Europe. Joe, I was running the international news desk for Bloomberg TV at the time, was trying to get reporters to various places and news events around the world. And it was a huge, huge pain to have to try to make your way around the world without flying through Europe. I remember flying a whole bunch of people the other way around through Asia or down through Johannesburg in South Africa. So they are so used to this. So the earthquakes, et cetera, in Iceland. I was listening to an interview with somebody who lives there and the reporter even mentioned like, they are completely unfazed. The road was cracked. And yeah. they, were, they were like, yeah, the road's cracked over there. Like, what's the question? I mean, it's <laughs> <laughs> we live in Iceland. There's volcanoes and earthquakes everywhere. Many words there are like, you know, 40 letters long. We just roll with it here in Iceland. From the Associated Press, Secret Service agents protecting President Biden's granddaughter opened fire after three people tried to break into an unmarked Secret Service vehicle in the nation's capital. The agents are assigned to protect Naomi Biden. And they were out with her in the Georgetown neighborhood late Sunday night when they saw three people breaking a window of a parked and unoccupied SUV. This is according to officials. One of the agents opened fire. No one was struck by gunfire. The Secret Service says three people were seen fleeing in a red car and that they put out a regional bulletin to the Metropolitan Police to be on the lookout for it. Joel, should we be more worried that they almost stole a Secret Service vehicle or that the Secret Service agent who opened fire wasn't able to strike anybody? There are many levels of concerning aspects of this story. I think we need to get a couple agents to the gun range. (laughs) Also, by the way, if they're breaking into a car, you're shooting at them. Anyway, I have a lot of questions here. Um, One of the reasons we put this story in the pod. Keep in mind, Washington, D.C. this year, seeing a significant rise in carjackings and car thefts. Police have reported more than 250 carjackings this year alone. 6,000 reports of stolen vehicles around the district. And it's impacted some government officials. We told you recently about Congressman Henry Cuellar of Texas. He was carjacked near the Capitol last month by three armed assailants who stole his car. Uh, Violent crime in general is up in D.C. this year, up more than 40 percent over last year. Back in February, another member of Congress, Angie Craig of Minnesota, was assaulted in her apartment building, suffering bruises, but she did escape serious injury. Uh, Naomi Biden, we should know, 29 years old, married at the White House last year. She had that White House South Lawn wedding. Uh, She was actually living in the White House with her fiance. Up in that top floor where Melania Trump's parents were living during the Trump administration, where Michelle Obama's parents were living. Anyway, Naomi had that um, room in the White House for a bit. Her dad, by the way, is Hunter Biden. Some people were asking about Secret Service protection. Officially, the president and all of uh, their kids get Secret Service protection. Of course, if there's more threats, they extend it out. But given that she's an adult, she lived in the White House, she's Hunter's child, and imagine he faces some threats due to you know his name being in the headlines all the time. One of the reasons she has Secret Service protection. Moshe, you mentioned that at some point, we don't know if she is still living at the White House, but that she was or is living at in an apartment at the White House, which officially is like the best deal ever. <laughs> I mean, my God. 
that's like reason enough to go into politics. It's pretty cool when Gramps is president. You definitely take advantage of that offer. From CNBC, a look at where the world's best and brightest are flocking. Switzerland, once again, the world's most talent competitive country, according to the 2023 Global Talent Competitiveness Index. The European country has held its crown for the 10th consecutive year, benefiting from its high levels of social protection and quality of its natural environment, according to this report. It's the Swiss army knife of countries, Joe. It's got a little bit of everything. <laughs> Singapore held on to second place thanks to its highly educated labor force and innovative economy, followed by the United States, which has actually climbed to third place after taking fourth last year. Hey, some good news for once about what? this country. <laughs> Shocking. So, so this annual report measures how 134 countries draw in, grow, and retain talent within their countries. The top 10 have remained pretty steady over the past decade, Switzerland, Singapore consistently one and two. The report says that over the past decade, we've seen an unwavering link between a country's wealth and its talent competitiveness with richer economies continuing to outshine the poorer economies. As far as some of the largest economies in the world, uh, like China and India, how are they doing? China has risen up to number 40 from closer to 50 in a previous list. India, which is widely forecast to become the third largest economy in the world in the coming years, came in 103rd. The index attributing this issue to a slump in business sentiment there that has hampered India's ability to attract talent from overseas and to retain talent domestically. As far as the rest of the top 10 here, though, other European countries continue to dominate the list. Uh, Denmark, Netherlands, Finland, Norway, also in the top 10. So is Australia and the United Kingdom. From ABC News, ChatGPT has exploded over the past year and using the technology has raised questions around the importance of authenticity for some of life's emotional moments. Think wedding vows, apologies, and even eulogies. Generative AI, a category of digital tools that create written content, has surged in use since the release of ChatGPT a year ago. The chatbot now boasts more than 100 million weekly users. ChatGPT scans billions of pieces of digital text and uses an algorithm to string words together in response to a human prompt. So people are using it to help write vows, speeches, and apologies. But the use of ChatGPT for some of these sensitive messages has occasionally stoked controversy. In February, Vanderbilt University had to apologize for using ChatGPT to compose an email to students about a mass shooting at another university. The phrase chat GPT apology has become a social media shorthand in reference to inauthentic expressions of public remorse. And one study found that when AI is used for help in writing apologies, it is perceived as less authentic and reduces the likelihood <laughs> that the author will actually be forgiven. You I think? wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> On the other hand, some people say the technology helped them overcome anxiety induced by a blank page and the expectation of eloquence in high pressure moments. Startups have even launched customized AI tools that help compose intimate notes like wedding vows. Yeah, Joe, we had some fun with this on the uh, Instagram account over the weekend, posted a link to the story and was like, okay, 
how do you guys feel about it? And it turns out we have a lot of wedding planners, wedding photographers, people associated with weddings, and of course, everyone who's attended a wedding um, or been in a wedding, <laughs> their own wedding, uh, all chimed in. So we got thousands and thousands of comments. I'm not able to get through all of them. But uh, one follower said that her sister's maid of honor used ChatGPT for her speech, and it was, quote, very, very lackluster. <laughs> they said they were all mortified for her and the rest of the wedding guests grimace. <laughs> And then on the other side, you have a wedding planner who chimed in on the Mo News Instagram account who said, I actually think it is a great tool for people to write their toast. By the way, it's a toast, not a speech. No one wants to hear anything longer than three minutes. Please and thank you, the wedding planner says, saying they've heard lots of terrible speeches, so they think it can only get better if you're using ChatGPT effectively. I think one of the tricks, Jill, with ChatGPT is you don't just take the first output, you re-input it and you tweak it over time with some details to really make it feel more custom. You use it as a draft, if you will. Totally, because it can be daunting to look at a blank page. So you use it, it starts the whole thing for you and then you tweak it. It's why one of, you know, one of, I think they say that more Americans are fearful of giving a public speech than of death, right? Jill, but I did also ask people, I was like, tell me about the worst wedding speech you've ever heard. And most of these are non-chat GPT things. And the things people have said, the things fathers of the bride, maids of honor, best men, um, things have been said in vows. It was uh, mind-boggling, Jill. I mean, I guess it's explained by the fact that we have a 50% divorce rate in this country. But Give give us the worst one. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) The father of the bride congratulated his daughter on her virginity thus far. Marriage advice from the bride's dad, who had just very publicly cheated on his wife. Bride, my cousin, saying her marriage was going to be better than her parents, who are divorced, also sitting in the room. The officiant talked about the joy of sex as part of the ceremony. A groom talked about how good his bride was in bed. I want to vomit, the person tells me. Best man had an 11-minute speech, and it ended with, this is the person most likely to murder you. (laughs) Not content, but length. At a wedding two weeks ago, a speech was 35 minutes long. (laughs) another speech the maid of honor rambled about all 25 boyfriends the bride once had and what was wrong with all of them uh maid of honor said people always thought she was prettier than the bride ironic that she was single and speaking at the bride's wedding i wonder why you're single (laughs) a couple others bride's dad spent a considerable amount of time talking about her pre-braces buck teeth Father of the bride told the story about bride's pet kitten falling behind a radiator and dying and how his daughter cried a lot. A 17-minute slideshow made by the mother-in-law where 15 minutes were just about her son. No mention of the bride the entire time. The be- <laughs> Jill, Jill, hold on with this one. Father of the bride ended with this, quote, My advice to the groom is not to get caught diddling the neighbor. What is wrong with people? You know what? Maybe ChatGPT isn't so bad. And Mosh, our final story in the speed read from USA Today, a new Beyonce reporter will join the reporting team following the hire of a Taylor Swift reporter. Cache McClay will cover the new beat for Gannett, which includes USA Today and the Tennessean. McClay will focus on all things Beyonce, from her fan base to the Beehive to her influence on fashion, music, and culture. McClay was hired following a nationwide search that drew hundreds of applicants. The new position in Nashville was part of a nationwide initiative to expand Gannett's digital audience. They recently added, as we mentioned, a full-time Taylor Swift reporter. The role will cover Beyonce's business and entertainment empire, which includes her upcoming film, documenting her $580 million 
dollar grossing Renaissance World Tour and a new perfume line. McClay said, quote, I grew up in a Beyonce household. My mother and sister are fans more than playing music. Beyonce's impact has shown us the possibilities are endless. McClay most recently covered entertainment news at TMZ in Los Angeles. All right. Jill, I have an opinion. Can I opine? Please. (laughs) So this is the deal. I think that these are important reporting positions. I think that the, you know, uh, impact on the economy, on culture, multi-billion dollar by people like Taylor Swift and Beyonce, significant and deserve coverage. My issue here is they hired stands to cover Taylor and Beyonce, right? They hired fans who are really into them and not reporters who can apply a critical lens. At least it does not appear so. And it comes at a time where, you know, they're losing reporters covering city halls and police departments and investigative reporters and important stuff that we need across the country. So anyway, I wish them luck covering Taylor and Beyonce. And I hope that they, uh, you know, can tell some good stories and not just, you know, rave about how great they are. No one's doubting how great they are. I'm just saying journalists should uh, do some journalism. This was exactly what my take was and and our take was on the Taylor Swift hire. Um, She's an empire. They both are. Yeah. But don't hire stands, as you say, which are just, that's like the new word for fans. Hire reporters who are going to do some digging. Because the thing is, there are plenty of stands out there already. There was like tons of blogs and websites and Instagram and TikTok accounts devoted solely to Taylor Swift and Beyonce already. So it will be interesting to see what they're adding to this conversation. Certainly a lot of pressure on them. There's be there's several hundred reporters <laughs> as part of Gannett who are like, okay, newbie, let's see what you got. All right, now time for On This Day in History. Jill, On This Day in 1948. King Charles was born. He wasn't king, of course. He was Prince Charles at the time. He just got to become king in the last year. So we wish happy birthday to King Charles, who, after many, many decades of waiting, finally gets to be the monarch of England. All right, on this day in 1960, six-year-old Ruby Bridges began attending France Elementary School in New Orleans. She became the youngest of a group of African-American students to integrate uh, schools in the American South. You might be familiar with the uh, famous photos there of the school integration, a significant moment in American history. Staying in the 1960s here for a second, on this day in 1969, Apollo 12 was launched uh, carrying a crew to the moon. Uh, Jill, Apollo 12 gets no love. Apollo 11, of course, was in July of 69. The first group, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, who landed on the moon. Apollo 13, obviously with the uh, chaos and the failure of that mission, uh, but the fact that they were able to safely get them back to Earth. Uh, Apollo 13 got a lot of love. But on this podcast today, we're going to give Apollo 12 a little love. Notably, Apollo 12 was struck by lightning twice, causing problems with the instruments, but no damage um, as it made its way to the moon. Apparently, it fried its camera, too, so we don't have many images from Apollo 12. But there you have it. And on this day in 2002, 21 years ago today, Nancy Pelosi of California became the first woman to be named leader of either party in Congress. Of course, she would uh, go on to be both minority leader and speaker um, several times for the Democrats. All right, we end here with a bit of pop culture. Jill, a shout out to a TV show that had a lot of impact on me as a kid. On this day, 35 years ago, Murphy Brown premiered on CBS uh, starring Candace Bergen. It was a show about a weekly news show. And I, as a very young elementary school, middle school student, used to be really into Murphy Brown. 
And I was probably the only eight-year-old that wanted to be Miles Silverberg. I don't know if people know that show, but I, I wanted to be <laughs> I the, do. I, I wanted to be the executive producer of a new show. I might have been one of the only second or third graders to have that vision as I watched that show. Well, I was a huge Murphy Brown fan as well, Moshe. So it, this this podcast is making a lot of sense. There, I, I would say like that show, if, those of you of a certain age who listen to this podcast, Murphy Brown, L.A. Law, and West Wing were like the three shows of my youth. And I was like, I wavered from journalism into law, then back to journalism and <laughs> politics based on watching those shows through the 90s. All right, a bit of music news here. On this day, 25 years ago, Lauren Hill reached number one in the Billboard charts with doo-wop, That Thing. That Thing, That Thing. That Thing. <laughs> um, and finally, turning 20 today. Jay-Z's Black Album was released on this day in 2003. You might be familiar with a number of the hits on that album, Dirt Off Your Shoulder. Encore and 99 Problems. So, Moshe, you're not there yet as a parent because Olivia is still so young, but eventually you will get there where my daughter has occasionally come home and said somebody was mean to her or said something Mm -hmm. not nice to her, blah, blah, blah. And the only advice that I can think to give without being like, tell your teacher or do this. And if you're listening to the pod, you can't see me, but I'm doing like the dirt off your shoulder type of thing, Mm -hmm. which is basically my advice to her. Like, yeah. Get that, you know, that that kind of dirt off your shoulder. Brush it off. Who cares? Do like Sean Carter, young yes. Alex, and brush that dirt off your shoulder. Correct. It's working for him. <laughs> he is doing something right, as is Beyonce, who now has her own reporter. Uh, so that, yes, is my, uh, that is always my advice to my daughter. Whenever there's a bully. All right, Jill, we got 99 problems, but ending this podcast ain't one. <laughs> Nicely done. All right. We want to thank everyone for listening to the Mo News Podcast. If you like what you hear, share this with your friends. It will help us grow. Follow us and subscribe so you don't miss an episode and review us in the App Store. Yeah. And a reminder to join Mo News Premium over at mo.news slash premium. Just $7 a month to support what we're doing here at Mo News, all of our platforms. And today we have a special edition out on what the U.S. government's been covering up about UFOs for the past 80 years. It's a fascinating conversation available now on the Mo News Members podcast. A reminder, with premium membership, you also get access to our members-only Instagram page. Bye, everybody. Later. Thanks for listening to the Mo News Podcast.